Welcome to the podcast is dedicated to making you a faster cyclist. The ask a cycling coach podcast presented by trainer road. I'm coach Jonathan Lee. We have the crew back together. It's exciting to have everybody. We have Cannondale and trainer roads, Amber Pierce. Hey everybody. We have our head coach, Chad Zimmerman. Hey everyone. And welcome back, Chad. Good it to is. have you. Yeah. And He's our CEO, Nate Pearson. He's got a beard-ish. <laughs> I've never seen one on you. This is as close as I get. This is, I like it. This is my version of a beard, yeah. It should go longer. Someone, we need to put a picture of this in the forum post. What's this episode? Yes. Number? <laughs> this one is going to be episode 284. 284. Uh, is it 285? Oh, man. I'm, I've been recording a lot of podcasts this, episode, or this week, so forgive me if that number's incorrect. It might be 285. <laughs> Sorry, I haven't been here for a while. Um, I've been actually counting votes. For Nevada. <laughs> so taking me it was you. <laughs> well, I, with the concussion, I was like one, two and a half. And I'm like, did I, or excuse me, bleep that out. How did I get two and a half? I'm really glad we're not live. That's the first time I've sworn on air. That's like a little bit of my mental state right now. <laughs> That's the first That's time ever in like hundreds of hours. Wow. Okay. Ugh. Okay. Buckle well, in. Thanks, so, for, thanks for getting the votes counted, Nate, for solving all of that for We're us. not done yet. Um, I'm so glad we're not live. This is like, oh, yikes. Okay. So we're going to have editors on this. We do. If you're listening to this, uh, you can obviously see Chad's beard and also see the lack of of Nate's black eye. It seems like it's almost all the way gone now, or maybe it is all the way gone. Way to go. Uh, from And you can join us on YouTube to watch this, of course, or you can listen on whatever podcast app you're using. Please share, subscribe to the podcast, whether you're on YouTube or anything else like that. Sharing it helps us a ton because then more people listen to this, more people get faster. It's huge. Uh, but Nate, welcome back after the concussion. We have uh, a good to know that you're on the mend. Uh, concussions are really tricky. It's never like a bone where it's like, it's healed. And then you just know that everything is fine, but uh, you're taking your steps back to it. But kind of before we get into that, we should mention something that um, we've made a pretty big promise that we continue to to focus on and hold strong to yes. in terms of trying to do our part to make this uh, our company an example in this, but also just increase racial representation across the board. And we have an update we want to share with that. Yeah. So we talk about diversity inclusion in all aspects of Trainer Road, and there's kind of like three main areas. One is the representation on our marketing stuff, right? That is not just white dudes, right? Um, which is- We should share a point. Yeah. Can we share a point on that really quick? Um, that, that's been a project that I've been trying to lead forward here. And uh, we have been working with a number of different photographers on 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 making sure that what we're doing here is, is appropriate. Because that's really tricky, right? Because where do you draw the line? Everyone listening to this, like, like think of this, like uh, where do you draw the line between tokenism? Where do you draw the line between actually supporting and, and, and showing and representing what this sport could be versus what it is? It's, it's a tricky point and, and it's something that we're walking through and trying to, I guess, do the best we can with. We're working with specifically BIPOC creatives in almost every case as well, because they have a, a good perspective to be able to share with us on this. Um, one barrier that we're running up against right now, at least in in really getting a lot of different imagery is of course with, with COVID and everything else, we don't want to put people at risk with doing indoor cycling shoots, you know, you're breathing and, and that's just a, a risk that we're really not willing to take for the photographers, for the photo facilities, whatever they're using for everything else like that. But at the same time, that's something that we're working on and trying to do so in a way that is respectful. Um, but hopefully moves this sport forward because as we've all spoken about here, all four of us, white people, 
we've, we've never faced that experience where we don't get to see people that we see everybody that looks like us when they're on a Wheaties box, when they're in the Olympics, when they're in that sort of a thing. So, um, but hopefully we can change that. So that's one effort that we're working on there in an update there. Okay. So there's three areas, that area. And then two is inside of trainer road, make sure our hiring process, we're doing a uh, more diverse job board postings to try to get a better feed in trainer road. And then <clears throat> usually in our process, the first step is some kind of um, analysis of like, how well you do in something. So for instance, engineers, it's looking at a uh, refactoring project, <clears throat> excuse me. And what we've done do, and what we have done too, is we have somebody go out and take out all the names and everything. And engineers just say project one or candidate one, candidate two, candidate three. So we blind rate those. So we don't know, you know, age or sex or any of that sort of stuff. Cause really in engineering, it can be even, uh, age can be discriminated against, uh, that, you know, think everyone needs to be like in their twenties to be a good program, which is not the case at all. Um, but just one thing. And then the third part though, is like, what can we do to raise, um, in STEM long-term, uh, the, uh, bring up underrepresented groups. Cause right. STEM is also just like cycling where it is mostly, um, at least in, in, uh, software white men and some Asian men too. Uh, and what we're doing is we're working with, uh, a local economic development program. And there's like this robotics competition that they have, and we're sponsoring a middle school, which is super cool. And I'm underrepresented middle school, um, based on where they are inside of Reno. And then we are partnered with Tesla. Tesla has no idea who we are, but they're part of it too, which is just kind of cool to say. And the, the nice part though, is so we buy equipment and we're buying a little extra equipment so they can do this during COVID, but then our employees are going to be mentors and not just software and like designing it, but also marketing, um, like visual design and, uh, copywriters are going to help. Uh, it's really cool. So we can have a remote company, but we can have engineers around the country zoom into these classes during train road work hours too, which is really cool. And then, um, like teach these kids, like what they know about building a good product. Cause this competition is not just how your robot works, but how you package it and stuff when, so for me, for getting started with Trina Road, I remember I was probably eight, nine, 10. And I had a cousin who was older in his twenties and he got me like this electrical engineering board for Christmas. And before I had just like classic boy gifts and uh, I got it and I had to like connect wires and stuff and follow diagrams. And that was the insertion point. And sometimes it just takes that like that one present mm -hmm. or that one thing or that one class where then it opens your eyes to, hey, I could do this. This is an opportunity for me. And although I'm not an electrical engineer, because that's really super hard, um, I like, uh, you know, it helped me inside of my STEM journey. So that's what we're trying to do there. It's only one class, but hopefully other people are listening to this and uh, other people who own companies. Imagine if half the companies in America or in the world did this, that would be a gigantic. But remember, imagine it's just one more. That'd be really cool. Yeah. So yeah. just, just a quick note in case anybody's not aware, STEM stands for science, technology, and engineering, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics fields. So STEM is the, the acronym for just sort of like science oriented fields. Yeah. Which is cool. Uh, Amber, you are a STEM grad. I am. Yes. Yeah. What do you have your <laughs> master's in? Do people even, have we talked about this? Uh, probably haven't. I don't know. So undergrad degree, bachelor's in human biology, and then master's in, um, it's, it was through a program called Earth Systems, but my focus, focus was oceanography. So it's physics of ocean circulation and ocean climate dynamics. Um, and so there's a lot of biology involved in that, but um, it was a pretty interdis interdisciplinary STEM program, which was cool because we got a little bit of everything. What uh, school was that? <laughs> it was at Stanford University. 
What were your, what was your SAT score again? <laughs> <laughs> this is an inside joke, but Amber won't tell us. She, 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 this, okay. I can do whatever I want. I haven't been here for a while. There was some inside joke. I forget what we said exactly, but it was something like Amber was trying to say she wasn't one of the smart kids at school. And she blew me away in everything academically because we went to the same high school. And I think she got like, this was about a 1600, but I think she got like a 1580 or something. I can't remember, but she won't tell me what her SAT score is. So if anyone here is listening (laughs) and they remember Reno High, class of 1999, please message tr.nate on Instagram, message me. And uh, I take the secret to to the grave, Amber. (laughs) It makes it entertaining. See, that's the thing. It's not actually a big deal, but now that it's become a thing, like I'm just going to be super stubborn on it. I'm just not going to give anything away. (laughs) You have to. It's more than ours. It's probably more than any of ours. I know it's more than mine for sure. Yeah, you could add mine to other people's. And yes. it be there. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Nate, let's talk about your crash really quick. Uh, so for people know that you have suffered a concussion, but we haven't really gotten into what you were doing, the why, the how, everything else. So cool. run us through it. And so hopefully then we can learn from the whole process. I also want to say uh, some takeaways from the whole clinic that I went to. So I was uh, in Moab at a Lee McCormick, LeeLikesBikes.com mountain bike clinic. Super duper cool. Moab is a very cool place, very unique. And uh, there were 12 of us all outside socially distanced. And they had a ratio of uh, one coach to three riders, which was amazing. And the cool part about that too was that you got to have different eyes. So as we're doing drills, a different coach would pick something up like that Lee might not pick up or they say the same thing, but in a slightly different way. And then it clicks different. So it is uh, once that we get back, uh, like we should at least Chad, uh, Amber and I, John, you're fine. I mean, you, you level up too, but we should go do another one of these with Lee, uh, in the future. So the, the three takeaways that I have from here, and then we'll talk about the crash. Um, three things that I leveled up. There's a lot of takeaways, but three things that I uh, totally leveled up. One is the high hinge. So sorry. Um, we talk about hinging a bunch and getting the correct position. This is the, the, uh, hinge inside of the hips and a high hinge is where uh, you are still hinged, but your legs are almost locked out, but they're not locked out. And what this does is this removes um, strain from your quads. And so what I would get at like uh, Pike's Peak descending, it was like a 30 minute descent. I would get so tired on the descent that I could no longer get in that position, that low hinge position with the legs bent. And I would start sitting on the saddle as much as I could to try to get my, uh, to try to make rest my legs, which is a very dangerous position. The best way to think of this high hinge position is think of Matthew Vanderpool. When he is in any cross race or mountain bike race, he is almost always in this high hinge position. And then when he needs to, he instantly switches to a low hinge position and then he gets back up there. That like, I I was getting like flowing on, on berms and stuff in that high hinge and it felt really comfortable. John, do you have anything to add to that, to that high hinge? Yes. Yeah. Two things. Number one, it's the intangible thing that you recognize in a rider that looks really good and comfortable on a bike, but you can't put your finger on it. They're doing the high hinge effective or in in an effective manner. Uh, Number two. So the straight leg thing, to be honest, at points, your legs are straight, but they're very easy to move. They are not locked. Like you're not stuck in that straight position, but your legs will go straight. If you look at Matthew Vanderpool's knees, you'll see that they are fully straight. His heels are fully dropped and he has straight legs, right? And he's just an L. There is no bend in the L, there is no rounding to the L, it's a perfect L, and all of the bending is just in that, in the hips. 
So it's, it's a big thing for cross country racers when they are not in that high hinge, it's because they are dealing with something they are going over or they're needing to change where their, their traction is. For example, breaking into a turn, they will go lower because lower means you get more traction in almost every case like that. So it's really important to, to note that if you are afraid to get your legs straight because you feel like your legs, like you've been told your legs shouldn't be straight, they will feel straight. It's just, they will be able to, you'll be able to move out of that position very quickly. And then the last thing with that is the reason that you are able to flow through things, Nate, and the reason that you get, this is once you figure out the high hinge, you're just able to get way more speed out of everything is because think about it. You're passing energy through your bike, but you're doing it through a more solid system. So there's less loss. Whereas if you introduce bend through different parts of your body, you lose more of that energy along the way. Um, so it's, you'll notice uh, Nino Scherter does a fantastic job of this too. When he goes through berms, you'll see that he'll be like hinged and low coming into the turn in a lot of cases or high, but let's just assume low coming in. And then you'll see him when he's coming out, he's in a high hinge when he comes out or at least partway through that turn. And he's doing that because that allows him to generate more speed coming out of turns. It's just high hinging is the best and your quads should never burn from a descent ever. If anything, like the only thing that should be burning on a descent would be your glutes and your hamstrings, your posterior chain, not everything in the front. So when you get to the point where you're doing it right, you'll recognize that. Awesome. So. Thank you. Okay. Take away two out of three. Uh, we talked about fire road descents because one, they freak me out. We see a lot of them in gravel racing and mountain bike racing and Cape Epic's going to have a bajillion of them. And, uh, the, the way that, uh, the way that Lee teaches to do this is a air quote scallop in a fire road turn. So the, the way of a scallop is, um, you are pushing in your entire body into the bike and there is this pumping action with the inside hand. So if you're turning right, it'd be the right hand. Or if you're turning left, it's the left hand. And it's the best is just to go to Lee likes bikes or follow him on Facebook. And he has many, many examples of this. But what this does is when you scallop, um, you are doubling or tripling your weight by unweighting and then pushing down with your force into the bike and with your hand. And that then doubles the traction. So even if you're over loose, over hard, you are, your rocks are pushing the little rocks and the little rocks are pushing into the dirt right? To think of like getting more traction. And so he will break up a, instead of a swooping 90 degree turn, like a road racer would do, where we just like kind of rail the whole turn is kind of coming at an angled where you would have like overshot the turn totally. Then you do one scallop or two scallops. So you do two, you kind of take, you eat your turning up in small little bites. And, um, there, there's a really cool drill that we did. I wasn't really nailing it until he had another coach go with me and we were racing to the corner. And for me, some reason when I race, my brain changes and I am like, I like my fear goes away. And then he was coming at me with such an angle that if I didn't take this turn sharp, like it, we would have gotten too close from, for me and him doing that of kind of just being on the right side of me, I had to take the right side and a little bit ahead of me. I had to take these chunks faster and it just clicked for me and I could do that. Um, John, you've scalloped yeah. before. Do you have, again, do you have, yeah. Anything? Yeah. Like for all of us listening to this, if you've trained with trainer road, you've done over unders before. And I know this sounds abstract, but it has a perfect relation to this. Cause I don't know about all of you, but like the biggest fear I have when I'm going on a fire road descent is where's the line. And what I mean by where's the line is where am I going to lose traction? Like I have it, I have it, I have it. And suddenly I don't. And the sketchy thing about fire roads at that is since it's just a big flat surface with usually loose little marbles on top of something hard, 
it's very slippery. And once it goes away, it's tough to get anything back. Uh, a, a trail with like relief to it and bumps and rocks and everything else that actually allows you to kind of, you know, find points and turn and kind of segment your turn up into it. So when Lee forces you to scallop it, it's a really good idea because it's forcing you to break it into those chunks. But the reason I bring up over unders is because you're kind of dancing north and south of that line, so to speak, when you scallop. What you're doing is instead of just waiting for the eventuality to hit where you really do hit the ground and you've lost traction, instead what you do is you push and you find the point where you actually force a turn. And at times in that you won't even notice, but you're probably over that traction line. And then it allows you to rest on the safe side of it. And then you'll turn and you continually do that. And what it does is it takes it from being a razor's edge to being something that's much more broad and it increases your comfort. So th the other thing that Lee always says is make shapes on the trail. And what he's meaning by this is scalloping and using the features of the trail. So when you see like a little rain rut in that fire road, don't panic. That actually might be your best friend because you might be able to utilize the pitch going into that or out of it as a point to scallop with more traction and more security instead of just a flat surface. So, and then once you get really good, like go follow Richie Rude on Instagram and look at his videos. My goodness gracious. Like he can scallop so hard that he rips tires off of his rims. Um, so like the, it's just amazing the amount of force he can have, but it's the, he's refined that skill and he just gets down to the point where he can do that and just really control his direction, speed, everything on a trail. It's a really cool skill. I burped a tire scalloping on the, on the concrete, yes. but, uh, it was nice kind of going flat before. So it, nah, it doesn't really count. <laughs> Details. Okay. The last thing, uh, and I'm, uh, who cares? If you don't like me, just keep fast forwarding until you hear us do a question. Uh, the steep climb, this is steep climb. So, uh, the really steep stuff, especially really steep and loose. I've always had a problem with it where you're climbing and then if you hit any like little rock, it kind of like stops my momentum, my back wheel will spin and then you have to unclip. And this in a race is so demoralizing because oftentimes you cannot start again on that climb until it flattens out. And then there's that thing where you're like, you're always hopping and you're like trying to get on a rock and it is very hard to get going again and you can lose 10, 15, 20 seconds. If you're close to a group, you totally get detached. And in Moab, what they have, especially this place called Slick Rock, which is a very famous trail, uh, is extremely steep rocks, but they have so much traction, um, but they are very, very intimidating. So, I mean, steeper than John, you want to describe it, steeper than anything I've ever ridden in my life. It bends your brain. You're like, I should not be able to ride up this right now. It's too steep. But since like, it's basically a perfect sandpaper, consistent single rock surface you're riding on, the tires just don't let go. It's crazy. So inside of this, I, I still had tire slips when I did the wrong technique. And Lee teaches this, this hip driven technique that took me probably, actually took me a whole day to actually get really right. And let me describe it and I'll tell you why it works. So what you do is when you're out of the saddle and you're climbing really steep, you are almost standing straight up. And when you see like Nino or something cross country, they are still like hinged over and bent over, but this is for the very steepest climbs where you are looking and you might lose tension. And then as you are climbing, instead of like your, I, I had an all time power PR max doing one of these climbs, uh, instead of doing the thing where as you push down with the left pedal, you're pulling up with the left bar, you are pulling back. So your arms are almost straight and you're pulling back towards your hips with both hands at the same time which is very important, which that was the unlocking point for me. So you're almost standing up straight and every pedal stroke 
down, you're pulling with both hands at the same time. And this is kind of how Amber 2 describes the beginning of a sprint. This is how BMX bikers sprint out of the gate. Um, mm -hmm. And, like and then it kind start. of- Yeah, exactly. Exactly, yep. And this gets you, the, the, the reason why this works so well is, uh, and then look up, that's the other big point. Every time you look down your front tire, the coach would be able to look up and I would see people look up and they would instantly float up the hill, which is just bends your mind because it doesn't make sense. <laughs> but the reason why this works is where your bottom bracket is on mountain bikes and the more kind of enduro-esque, the longer the front is and the ratio between the front and the back. So it's longer in the front than the back. And when you're pulling in your bars to you, you're actually uh, giving leverage to your rear tire. So you are pushing your rear tire in with each pedal stroke as you're pushing in and getting more traction. So just like we said, like I, uh, I might uh, slip out, but if you, are, if you are pushing down, you might be doubling your traction with your pedal stroke. And the other one so is- You're creating uh, a fulcrum. Yep, exactly, around exactly. your bottom bracket. I had, I was climbing some loose stuff the next day uh, on a, my 50 in the back. And one of the coaches, you gotta break up with that 50 because I was still spinning out and being in a smaller or a yeah, smaller gear or, you know, a, a, not a 50, but whatever smaller the cog 42. Yeah. Um, that allowed me that my cadence was a bit slower, but as I did the fulcrum pushing back, all the power would go in at once and I would get even more traction going up and then I didn't slip out and it just feels weird. Um, but it was, it, I didn't, I, I climbed stuff that I had never climbed in my life. And so that, that is very awesome. John, I, anyone, I just yeah, go to John because he's the experts. <laughs> I can't add anything to that. It's awesome. And, and even Nino and those guys actually, I will add something, but even when Nino is bent over like that, he's still pulling back with both hands. Um, it's, it's really common. And actually, so, uh, this can, you can actually use this kind of to get away and kind of cheat when you're really tired. Cause when you're tired, this is really hard to do to maintain all that tension. And when we're tired, we also drift forward, not only on the saddle, but also when we're out of the saddle, we drift further forward. And then with mountain biking or cyclocross or gravel traction, or even road traction, then when you're further forward on that back wheel is compromised. So you'll see a lot of riders being too far forward. And, but what they'll be doing is they'll be pulling straight back on those bars to try to, to push that tire in. It's it's a cool thing. I still struggle with this too, though, Nate, like uh, steep climbs and, and the first little sign, it's still a struggle for me. And, and one of the things too, like I always struggle with slow technical stuff. That's the, the, I, give me speed and my life is perfect, but take speed away. And I feel like I'm Bambi on ice. So yeah, it, everybody benefits from that sort of stuff. Cool. We should do another clinic Amber Chad with Lee. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah. He's he's the best teacher. Chad. He's amazing. Well, no, yeah. no, no. We well, we actually have one in the works for Amrit oh, cool. and me, and yeah, so it's gonna happen. Dope. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're planning on it. So now getting the crash story. Uh, so there's probably this was uh, the so the first day was slick rock. The second day was like I think Klondike or something, and the third day was the whole enchilada. Now in the world, John, help me with this. I think. Probably the four most famous trails I can think of are Whole Enchilada, Slick Rock, Around the World, and A-Line. Are there any other yeah. <laughs> huge, like, right? So this is, like, yeah. mountain bikers know the Whole Enchilada, right? Yes. And yeah. it is a- Yeah, it's, it's a well-known trail. You go Super long the, shuttle. Yeah. Uh, some athletes that are crazy cross-country athletes will ride up, but it's usually you drive up to the LaSalle Mountains outside of Moab, and it's a long ride. It's a, what, like a 30, 40 mile ride, maybe, um, from the top to bottom. So- Long day. From the Long very day. top to the bottom, it can take some people six hours to descend, 
with stops mm-hmm. and stuff. So that is a long descent. We do not yeah. start from the very top because what Lee said, the very like tasty and yummy stuff is down lower, uh, <laughs> which is in Lee speak, which is awesome. But uh, so we, we did that and you get a shuttle and you drive up and they were, Lee was so great as he even did a shuttle company that old VW vans where we could have all the windows open all the way around and have our masks on and go up as we went up. Um, it was cold day. And before we go up, we're at a bike shop because that's the shuttle point. And I am thinking, hmm, a lot of people have these full face trail helmets, which I did not know existed. And they, so they're not like the downhill huge helmets and they're not like a regular mountain bike helmet as they have a, 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 a face guard too, but they are light and airy. Bar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that is so cool is that I was like, well, let me think. I could buy a helmet right now before we go. Uh, and it was expensive, like 300 bucks. But if I crashed on my face and that saved me, I would be so, so, so happy, right? For that 300 bucks. And you would totally pay that. And it, compared to the ER bill, it is way less. So uh, I- foreshadowing. <laughs> I bought a, it was a Troy Lee design full face trail helmet. And it's back there, but anyways, it, it looked Isn't good. It bell? Oh, it was Bell. It's a Bell. I'm sorry, yeah, it was Bell. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Bell, I don't remember anything. The Super 2R, I think it is, something like that, yeah. Air, Super Air, that's it. So anyways. I'll look up the exact name. Yep. Uh, I, I bought that one, we get it, we go up. I don't think there's anything like wrong with using a, a helmet. Like, it's not like you practice using a helmet. We start going down, doing great on the trail, doing riding some stuff that I've never ridden before. Um, I start to, there's a big group of us, right? So I was giving somebody um, some room and then I was trying to like, well, let me high hinge and kind of flow up this and come up on the back of the person and then ride there and then get some more room. Like as we would stop, I'd give them some more room and then try to do like a little game where can I, without pedaling, flow to this person, which is my big issue is just, you know, pedaling into corners, jamming on the brakes, sprinting out of the corners. So uh, we do this and in this Moab section, this is lower porcupine. There are many like little rock croppings where you ride over the rocks and there is a giant cliff on the right side. It is kind of far away, but not that far away. And it's like a thousand foot cliff. Like you're dead if you fall off, which I hate. Mm -hmm. So I am on this guy's wheel and we're going over some rocks and uh, he goes left when he should have gone straight. And I am right on his wheel and I just follow him down. And so we're going off the trail and as we go off, he suddenly stops and I go, uh Oh, so I go to the left of him and then, uh, I get in some stuff that I shouldn't have. And I wasn't low enough in a hinge and I, uh, I fall over to the left side. And as I fall, um, there is a perfect, like cylindrical rock. And this rock comes in and misses my helmet completely and hits my, the corner of my eye, like where my temple is. Um, and then my glass, where my glasses are too. And I fall down and my head is this buzzing pain. It is the uh, most pain in my <coughs> life. And um, mm. just TMI here, but I had a vasectomy and the cauterizing went out of the numbed area. I get that every day over this pain. So it oh. hurt a lot. And uh, my head is buzzing. I rip my helmet off and I'm like, oh, and I stand up. I didn't pass out. And then I sit down and I'm like, okay, let's. Let's just go because sometimes when I crash, if I just go again, it's way better mm-hmm. because if I sit there and think about it, uh, I don't get going forward. And I go up and I look and I see like four faces like looking at me with their <laughs> mouth open, like, uh, Nate, you need to sit down. I'm like, uh oh. So I sit down. Um, I, I'm bleeding a lot and I'll, I'll put the, uh, the, the, po- the picture in the forum Maybe post. We can- 
Maxine might even be able to put it up on YouTube right now oh, so cool. that people can see it. So then the yeah. podcast listeners will be able to see it too. And uh, mm-hmm. anyway, so I'm, I got a gash on my face, but then uh, one of the coaches starts talking to me and he's like, uh, he, he's running me through like a little, like asking me questions. And I'm like, I don't remember your name. Uh, I'm like, oh, that's not bad. And mm-hmm. we, we were trying to think of like at this moment, with this kind of concussion, which you're worried about a head injury, especially if you don't hit your helmet, is do you have like a bleed, right? Because if you bleed, you stroke out, you're toast, right? My wife had a stroke, so I am kind of aware that the the time period is what's really important. So we're trying to think of what that is, and we're the, there's a there's nothing like you're going to get helicoptered out or you're walking out for hours. So we're trying to figure it out. And I'm I'm kind of with it, but then my vision is starting to go like I can't see stuff. My left eye is not swollen yet, but I can't see anything. And then my vision starts getting less and less and less. And then I'm not remembering stuff, but I, I, I know who I am, that kind of thing. And uh, there is also though an ER doc in our group, which is when I ride with an ER doc, I am like so happy, right? <laughs> Emergency medicine doctor. And, but he was ahead of us on the trail. So we, uh, I sit there for a while and I'm like, you know what, let's just start walking and then we'll see how we are because I didn't want to wait for longer. By the way, it has started to get cold. Like at this time, we started out when it was cold, but it started to get really cold. Walked to the ER doc. He has me do some stroke protocol stuff. And he's like, uh, doesn't seem at the moment, but you do need to go to the ER. And we decide to walk out. And uh, I walk out with Kevin. And then as we start walking, it starts to snow, giving you an idea how cold it is. And then though it starts to rain and it gets darker and I am freezing. I have, by the way, I have pads on. I have a POC downhill shirt, I have hip pads, I have knee pads, I have elbow pads, gloves, and a full face helmet, and this rock comes in and hits me right in the face <laughs> of the head where I have nothing. The one spot. The one spot, and I even thought like, I, had a, I have a POC full face helmet, I could have brought that, and although it probably would hit the goggles in this case because of the way goggles are over the temple, but anyways. We're walking, and we've all grew up in Reno. The thing they tell you in Reno is, the way people die is they are hot during the day and then we are a high desert. It gets cold. And because your clothes are wet, you get to, you get even colder, right? As it, as a day goes on. So in my mind, I'm like, I'm thinking, oh wow, we're going to die. And I'm walking with Kevin, who is a great guy. He kept saying, we're about a mile away, which we are not a mile away. We are hours away from getting out <laughs> like, of here. Like whatever he's concussed, like he'll yeah. leave me. <laughs> and as we are walking, uh, his phone's not working and we're trying to figure out which trail. So we have like forks in the road and he's like, he goes to Moab a lot, but he's like, I think it's this way. I'm pretty sure. And he's like, I got a blanket and Flint and it's like pouring rain now. I'm like, that's not going to help us. Uh, <laughs> so we are walking out. We eventually get to like a spot and he's like, if it was a normal day, this is the last day of the season. If it was a normal day, we would normally see all these four wheel drive people. We jump in, they take us to the hospital. We see nobody. We start walking more. Luckily, we find someone who is also picking up some friends who are stranded and too, are too cold. They pick me up to go to the ER. They give me 23 stitches on my eye. Although every medical professional that I've shown this is like, wow, they did a good job because you can barely see anything. When they took the stitches yeah. out, though, they kind of like cut my eyebrows off and uh, <laughs> two ladies did it. And they were just howling with laughter as they are taking each one out because they're taking more and more eyebrow hair out. Uh, but those will 
through girl back. So they're probably really good at stitching there at Moab. They get a lot of practice, I'm sure. So. Oh yeah. There is a, there <laughs> is a, a rugged map. place. <laughs> you saw this on my Instagram. We should post this too, uh, Maxine right now, but there is a map where there are pins for where people had injuries and the whole enchilada. There is a trail of mountain bike pins. There is a little circular <laughs> pin of people cliff jumping or cliff diving. Yeah. And then there are hikers yeah. and then ATV accidents, but it is not, it is a dangerous place. Uh, it is. So anyways, yeah, pretty rough. So the concussion though, um, you've been through that before. Uh, it, we've talked about this before too, about how to, to go about one in a responsible way, but do you want to just share yeah, some yeah. of that stuff once again? Cause we, we, we have gotten the question even within the past month of I've got a concussion. When can I return to training? My last concussion was my first cat five real cat five race where someone felt crash in front of me. I crashed on them. We're going over 20. I scorpioned in the ground, broke my collarbone laying on my head. This concussion was so, so much worse, which is one point is all concussions are different and you need to talk to your doctor and you can't think that each one's going to be the same or any advice that I have now is going to be, or any experience here, I'm not gonna give you any advice, any experience here that I have is going to be valid in the future. Because also if you look back, the science has changed on how to treat a concussion and you might be listening to this a year later and we could learn something new. So it's, uh, mm -hmm. so anyways. First point, talk to your doctor. It's all different. Second, um, the, I had problems focusing and looking at screens would give me a headache. Talking would give me a headache. Listening to people would give me a headache. Um, training was okay. I did a stepped, um, what my doctor said is that I could do a stepped return to training where I did a little bit more. And as long as my symptoms did not increase, I could. And now I'm kind of back, although my FTP is probably down. Um, I am back training a little bit lower volume, but it's okay. Uh, you can get emotional, right? With concussions. This is, I was watching the hunger games and, uh, Katniss is like, I volunteer. And I felt like I started to cry. And I was like, this is weird. This isn't normal. Like it's a, touching sure, moment. It's a good moment, <laughs> sure but not like cry moment. So that was a little weird. And I was also doing something else at work with a spreadsheet and I was like, bam, it's ready. And I sent it to, uh, somebody and like, one half of the spreadsheet was completely wrong. Like everything was in the wrong place. And I had, I thought it was perfect, right? It just shows you that it, I had no clue when I looked at it. I'm like, how could I even do this? Um, which is very weird. Uh, so uh, the last thing I wanna say about concussions are the, it's called ooh, second impact syndrome, I believe, where if you have a concussion and then you get another concussion, your risk of death is extremely high. And my sports medicine doctor last time told me uh, 50%, not 50% higher, but 50%, which is pretty crazy. So uh, mm -hmm. you, what I am doing is I'm taking extra time to make sure everything is good and not coming back. And I don't even wanna put a time frame on it because I want people to talk to their doctor about how long their doctor says the time frame because I could say something and it could be what my doctor said. And again, research could change. So that's very, very important. Um, the last part of this are helmets. I just want to talk a little bit about helmets for all of us because helmets are very, very important. And then we'll answer some questions. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, helmets, I, how do you judge a helmet about what's safe, yeah. right? We were talking about this a bunch. And one thing for sure that we can talk about it is coverage. If you don't have a helmet covering an area, how can it's it not going to do anything? Yeah, exactly. It, it, like, like, you know, on the temple, like you had right there, since no helmet's going to be there, it didn't, you couldn't 
you could have had plenty of different helmets, but if they don't cover that one area, then that's just, and that's the tricky part. We can never anticipate exactly how it's going to go. But you can get helmets that have more coverage, right, John? John, you want to run through kind of the the different types of coverage for helmets? Yeah, like uh, on road helmets, like for example, there are a lot of road helmets that stay pretty high in the back. And almost Amber and Chad back me up because you've been in in cycling at like a higher level than I have, looking at plenty of helmets in a Peloton a whole lot longer than I have. Um, So uh, because I'm relatively new to the sport here, but it seems like helmets now are getting a little bit uh, longer in the back. Like they're having more coverage down the back than they used to. It seems like helmets used to be a little bit higher in the back and I think that that's a really good sign. Um, I think hopefully we can get helmets just with more broad coverage all the way across the board. Like you'll notice mountain bike helmets. A lot of them have coverage where they drop down in front of the ear kind of over the temple in that section. And then they come back up over the head. I think it's a a really positive trend to see. And the same even goes if a helmet is like extremely well ventilated, but it doesn't have a lot of helmet as a result. Like there's less helmet material. That's something to consider. Like, you know, what, what's really, I think protection is something that's really important. Actually, Nate, something that you have kind of last on this point, but I think is really important is sizing. Like it does not matter how good the helmet is. If it does not fit you well, if it doesn't sit well on your head, if it, you know, if, if you get a helmet and has really strange pressure points and then spots where it isn't even close to making contact with your head, with the pads, that's the sort of thing that you can make uh, a very safe helmet by the book unsafe if it's the wrong size. So uh, and coverage and size are so important on the sizing front. And this is what I was taught. So if somebody has a more updated tip on this, please do share. Uh, but one thing that I found really helpful is if you're trying on helmets and you're trying to figure out what the right size helmet is for you, um, is to put it on, undo the strap when you're in the shop and you're trying it on and adjust the tension to where it feels comfortable and then bend forward. And if the helmet stays on your head relatively well, when you bend forward and it's under some tension, that probably means it's about the right size. But if it slips off really easily under that comfortable tension, or if you need too tension, that's uncomfortable in order to keep it from slipping off, you might want to try a smaller size. So that's a, a nice little litmus test. If you're in the shop and you're trying to figure out which one is the right size for you. Um, it's, it's a good test to try. Uh, so then, so there's coverage and there's like the long ones in the back, right? From mountain biking. It's like a trail one. The cross country ones are a little bit higher. And then the road ones are even higher. Then you can get a full face that goes a full face trail, which I had on. And then a full face, like, um, downhill helmet, which is the biggest one, and which is very, very hot and heavy. And you got to wear, and you have to wear goggles. One thing that I realized, John, is that the full face trail actually has less coverage on the temples than like a POC tactile because I think so. I think it is because they are designed to wear goggles and goggles wrap way farther back where, uh, so I'm trying on all my helmets. I bought a whole bunch and I'm, I'm looking at it to see like where my scar is, would it have stopped it? And maybe the POC would got close, but, but I don't know. It's, it's so hard to tell. The next thing about (laughs) helmets is like how well they do in a crash. And we have like one pretty good data point, maybe one other data point that I know of. And if you know of data, other data points, please put it in the forum. But Virginia tech has done, uh, they have a way to measure how well it works in a crash. Uh, I don't know really anything about the method rather than I've seen it drop. Basically, they have points, and in general, the MIPS do really well. The Bontrager, uh, what's that new Bontrager system? The Wave Cell. The Wave Cell does well, and then the ones without either of those usually do a little bit worse. So uh, I have looked in there, and I'm trying to find 
um, great coverage. And what I've come for for mountain biking is for training. I'm going to use the, oh, now I forgot the Fox drop frame pro uh, mm -hmm. helmet, which has, looks like it has good coverage. It hasn't come here yet. Uh, and then for racing and hot conditions, I am going to use the tactile, the POC tactile race because it is again, a helmet that goes all the way down. The only thing is that it has a visor and I don't like the arrow, um, loss of a visor, but, uh, I might just take it off. I know it, it looks probably goofy to people, but I don't care. Like who cares? Right. I don't need a visor. And yeah. I, I doubt the visor adds, uh, like face protection. If you are actually have 400 pounds of force coming in your face, if I could find right. a full face, um, trail one that has good coverage on the side, that would be awesome. But I, I don't know of one. Uh, yeah. And so really there's another Bontrager has somebody testing their helmets, I think in Oregon, and they say that their wave cell does way better than MIPS, but, uh, Virginia tech says that it doesn't, I don't know who's right, but, uh, that that's, that's all I want to say about helmets. So basically got a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah. When we're doing gravel racing, uh, I'll say one last thing. I'm sorry, everybody. I've talked so much, but, uh, one last thing on helmets is if you are crashing and there is the ability of hitting rocks. That, that's why like road helmets, when you crash, unless you hit a bike, which is probably going to move when you hit your head, it's probably going to hit the helmet, right? Because the asphalt doesn't have a spiky spot to go hit somewhere else, but for gravel or for mountain bike, there could be rocks in there. So I think for gravel and mountain bike, I don't see why we're all not doing helmets to go all the way down in the back. Even if you, oh, I, you know, 40 grams more, who cares? And then mm -hmm. honestly, uh, cycling tips just funny did this before John, I talked about it. Why aren't we all having full face trail style mountain bike helmets? Even when we race cross country, uh, they went farther and said even road too, which makes sense. Cause how many, have you guys all seen people crash on their face where it doesn't oh gosh, hit the yeah. helmet? Yeah. Am Amber, it's, you ever seen what happens that happened that way? She's shaking her head. Yes. So I don't know why we're not doing full face helmets and they're not required to, um, yeah, we require motorcyclists to wear them, right? Like, and, but honestly, the speeds that we travel on the road are downright, you know, even to what you get on a motorcycle in many cases. So, so yeah, yeah, I, I think it's a valid point. It's, it's certainly a worthwhile endeavor for all of us. We spend a lot of the time like testing out saddles or like, you know, even bar tape or like pedals and like trying to find the exact thing that we need. And we should put the, we should put even more focus into finding helmets that we like. So, and I want to say, it's definitely. Your, your experiences made me reconsider, yeah. um, everything about like what I have and think like, maybe I should look at different tests and try to find something I should constantly be on a search rather than just, this is the helmet I like, you know, the reason too, I want the POC one for racing and just the venting. Cause I think if, if it's a hundred degrees in South Africa, I cannot physically wear the Fox drop frame pro drop frame one, because it's just, mm. it's like solid piece. And, uh, I don't know if you guys ever done that where you, you just can't even stand in the helmet outside if it's super duper hot and then uh, I, I, yeah, you just can't do it. So that's, that's my plan. Awesome. Right, let's do let's some get into Damon's. <laughs> let's do it. I like it. Let's get into Damon's question. He says, Hey everyone, I recently got my first real road bike. He says, uh, they're probably all, all real, uh, as Damon. So, um, but I think that what you're getting at is something different here. He says my first real road bike after riding single speeds for most of my life. So a geared bike and have since fallen head over heels for cycling. I've spent the last seven ish months slowly building up my endurance. And now I'm happy <coughs> to say I have a few centuries under my belt and I'm always looking for ways to go farther and faster. 
The one thing that holds me back is my finances. I come from a poor family, and while I have a job that allows me to live comfortably, I am no dentist. <laughs> poor dentist. They <laughs> so he says, uh, actually, not poor dentist. Forgive right. me. I don't know why I just said that. Um, <laughs> so he says, so as of now, I still have no trainer, power meter, bike computer, etc., as it will take me months to save up for these things. And right now, my first priority is getting a proper winter kit so I can simply continue to ride through the winter. So my question is, what what are things I can do on the bike right now to actually give myself a sense of structure and improvement in my fitness without seeing my power or my heart rate? Really looking forward to signing up for Trainer Road the minute I have the necessary tools to enable me to train effectively. So, uh, this is a great question because it's, uh, talking about basically how to train when you don't have the resources that we take for granted. And we talk about all the time and plenty of people are in this situation, uh, to, to deal with this. So like first things first, I just want to just note, mention a couple things in terms of the product that you can use with this. Like if you don't have a power meter and you don't have a trainer, you can still use trainer road. Now, if you use outside workouts, uh, outside workouts, you can get them in power based or RPE based. I know RPE might be tough because you haven't like had the chance to train with power to calibrate it really well but everybody can understand a one to 10 scale, right? Like we, we can figure what that is. And at the very least, this is going to be better than no structure at all. And I think it's something that we probably don't talk about enough. Uh, it's something that you can absolutely do. We actually, I just recorded a successful athletes podcast. That's going to be published in the future. An athlete that had his really sweet bike and had the power meter, everything else. He crashed and broke his bike. When he got the replacement bike, he couldn't put his power meter on there because of those dreaded bottom bracket standards, <laughs> but he still wanted to keep training. Um, he was having training inside, outside. He was able to train with RPE based outside workouts. So that's one feature that you can totally use. Now, Damon, I understand you're, you're, you're being fiscally responsible and trying to take this all in stride as well. So the subscription, I, I get it. You know, it may not be what you want to do right now, but just the same. If you're in this situation and you're wondering, you don't necessarily need a power meter to be able to train with trainer road. You can get all of your workouts and all of your training plan, even just with the RPE based stuff. So hopefully that can make it more accessible. Um, but Amber, what would you say on this one? Where, where should we start with ways that somebody can get faster and improve their fitness right now without those sort of measurement tools? Yeah. I just want to start by saying when I actually got started in cycling, I didn't have anything like no heart rate monitor, no power meter. And it was a really, it was many years into my career before I started training with power. So I kind of went from nothing to heart rate only, and then finally got into, you know, combining heart rate and power and the power meter is really helpful. Yes. But you, it's like you said, it's not necessary at all. And not only did I start there, but most of the people who were mentoring me early in my career had actually entire careers, successful careers, not <coughs> using heart rate monitors or power meters. So, um, it's definitely doable. And so I speak in some part from experience here, uh, but I would just say you can create your own intervals based on terrain and RPE. So RPE being your rate of perceived exertion. So it's just like, how hard do you feel like you're going? Like Jonathan said, a one to 10 scale, you know, are you at an effort level of an eight out of 10, or is it like an act? total max 10 out of 10, you're about to fall off your bike when you finish the effort. Um, you can, you can create these for yourself using terrain. I like hill repeats are a really great example of this, you know, finding a long climb versus finding a short climb. And the hardest thing I think with RPE pacing is learning how much you can get out of your body over a given distance. 
And this isn't just pertinent to, to training, but it's a really important thing to learn about yourself for racing and time trialing and everything else that you want to do with cycling. It's a really awesome skill. And to train this with RPE is a really powerful tool. Um, and a couple of things that can help, help you learn how to get, you know, the most out of your body over, let's say getting the most out of yourself over a four minute climb is really different than getting the most out of yourself over a 20 minute climb. And it's really hard to drill in on that. But a couple of things that help with this one is to focus on finishing strong. So if you start the interval too hard, it's going to be really hard to sustain it. And when with RPE, you're going to feel like you're at an eight that whole time. Whereas if you had a power meter, you might notice that your power was dropping off. And so tuning into that is, is hard to do, but by focusing on finishing strong. And by that, I kind of mean like a negative split. If you mentally break the interval itself up into two parts, kind of holding back just a little bit in the first part, and then really unleashing in the second half, that can be a really helpful thing to do. And if you're doing hill repeats on terrain, you can also pick landmarks. So you know that the finish of the interval is at that telephone pole, but about halfway through the interval is the mailbox. So you might want to hold back just a little bit to the mailbox and then really unleash at the telephone pole. And if you're going to do that effort, maybe four times, then, you know, you might have a watch or something. You can say like, can I get past the telephone pole in three minutes? Or is it going to take me exactly three minutes to get to the telephone pole? Or at the three minute mark that did I not quite make it to the telephone pole that can help you get a sense of how evenly you're pacing your efforts over a set of different types of efforts. One thing to add to that, when you're talking about RPE and negative splitting and interval, you should come into that and think at the center point of that interval, you should be like, okay, now I unleash and you shouldn't be able to see a big increase. Right. Like, like it, if you're doing it right, when you unleash, you'll be like, oh my gosh, I really don't have that much more. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that shows that you're doing it right. Right. Yes. Like, so it's, it's, a, it's a key thing that that's sort of like effort. And that's a really fun thing to dial in. It really helps to have power. Sure. But you can absolutely dial it in otherwise. But so it won't feel like you're suddenly like, you know, unleash everything and you're really going flying up the hill. Hill, you'll probably still be going the same speed if you've paced it right. So totally. Yeah. And hills are great for this. Um, but then you might also want to be doing <coughs> intervals on flats as well. And that you can play around with gearing on flats. If you're on like a dead flat road, just increasing your cadence in the same gear is means that you're going to be putting out power by definition. You're going to go faster. It's going to feel harder. Um, so you can experiment with, with changing your cadence as a mechanism for gauging, an effort. Um, and you can do the same thing with landmarks. I think landmarks are a really great way to kind of gauge your pacing between, you know, different, different efforts, um, within a set. And then the last thing I want to say on this, which, um, all of my career, I go out and I do efforts back and forth on the same stretch of road, right? So I, I have a hill for my VO2 max efforts on a hill and I have a section of road that I really like for my 20 minute efforts. And I just go back and forth and repeat the, you know, whatever the reps I want to do within a set on that back and forth on that stretch of road. And after many years of doing this, I discovered that actually a lot of people, it doesn't occur to everyone to go back and forth on the same stretch of road. Like people kind of get it in their mind that you have to do a loop and then trying to, you know, add intervals in onto a loop can get a little bit tricky, but I just want to just put it out there. If it's not something that's occurred to you, it's totally fine. And it's actually not as boring as it sounds. It's kind of nice. And it does help you get a sense of, um, of how you're pacing each repeat within a set. Amber, I think you're the local engine on that stretch. 
<laughs> where Strava should look back. The Strava look. I want to see like what the count is, how many thousands of times you've gone on the same road and people like who like have a house there just like, what is she doing? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> Can I share something on this? So an Olympian actually has faced that exact same thing. I believe his name is Catriol Soto. He's from Argentina, from a small town, does not have training roads, never had them. And he, I, I, I could be getting this wrong, but I've heard this story that all he did was ride the same road because his town was one road. That was it. And all he did was ride that same road, just a different intensity. And that was it just in and out, in and out. And he was, you know, able to get to the point where he was. So as an inspiring point, you don't have to have, you know, a full team sky entourage at your disposal with science and everything else. You can still do quite a lot, uh, with, with not a lot. So it, I, it's, I do that too. I ride the same road. It's called trainer road. <laughs> it's like pretty much all I do. <laughs> That's actually where go. the name came from. It's a joke saying it's, I'll tell the story. I think I've already told the story, but that's, that's what it is. That's an Easter egg. We can never, never reveal. We have to keep people going on that one. That is a uh, dad joke. Sorry. <laughs> that was good. So yeah, great points. Uh, sorry, Amber to interrupt there, but I, no, I think that your point is proven by an Olympian. So, uh, so yeah, pretty and cool. By Amber. Pretty cool to hear. <laughs> Heck yeah. Uh, Chad, uh, how about you? Uh, do you, do you have any points to, to add on this? I, I, I know that you've mentioned even on some TTs, you've, uh, your, some of your best TTs have been done dataless. Yeah. I actually have a, a, a pretty hefty amount of contribution on this one. So first off, Damon, I'm going to lay some anecdote on you and then I'll follow that up with a bit of science and research because I think both of them are really <laughs> useful in, in this context. That was a good mic drop tone there, Chad. That was solid. <laughs> okay. okay. So m much like Amber, and I can actually quantify this for the first 15 years as a cyclist, I was dataless because I know I started right or I started racing bikes and riding. Uh, in 1990, got my first power meter in 2005. So I know when 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 I started riding with power data. And when I say dataless, I don't mean I was completely without data. I did have a speedometer. You know, I could see how fast I was going. Um, that's really all those things told you. Um, <clears throat> and then many of us started in college. I mean, I think that's where a lot of our racing careers began. There weren't a whole lot of high school teams back when I started, that's for sure. And we didn't have excess funds. I mean, we're coming from the same place you are right now. And one of the things I did, I got my mountain bike, I would ride this same loop behind my house. I mean, if I had to put a distance on it, it couldn't have been more than a five mile loop, but I did it every day. And I just got a little faster, a little faster, a little faster, went out and did my first local mountain bike race and got accused of being a sandbagger because I won by such a large margin. And I did that same loop, that was it. it, it but it was, you know, the same type of terrain. There was some, there was a lot of overlap such as that loop that actually benefited that particular race really well. And then, as Jonathan mentioned, some of my best time trials were dataless. Even when I got to a point that I had a power meter and I could look at the data, I chose not to. Well, actually, I couldn't afford to put it on my power or my uh, time trial bike, so I really didn't have it on there. But later, I did, and I would typically tape over it or I would put the headpiece in my back pocket because I found I time trialed really well, simply paying attention to how I felt. Mm -hmm. And 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 all this was done. All the time trials, the you know, fair amount of successful ones, high placings, some you know, wins, et cetera, was done on a cobbled together time trial bike. So again, coming from a, you know, a, a low level of income background still made it work, still took the, the old bike because I got a new bike at some point, slapped on some arrow bars, put on a forward post. It wasn't a dedicated or it wasn't a specific TT bike, but it became a dedicated one and it worked quite well. And then mm -hmm. 
uh, many years later, uh, I did a couple iterations of the race around Lake Tahoe. And this is a 72 mile loop around Lake Tahoe. And it's exactly what it sounds like. You race around the lake, takes, you know, if you're fast, three hours or less. And we had a kid <laughs> along with us mm-hmm. on one of those trips mm-hmm. who had, I kid you not, it, 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 I can't even, it was an old bike, clearly. Had, had cables going everywhere, cable housings going everywhere, down tube shifters. He had baskets on his feet. He had regular clothes on, and he hung with us the entire race. Every time I thought we were going to shed this kid, he was there. I would look back, so, expecting the next rider to pull through, and who is it but this guy? So he hung in till the very final sprint. You know, we out-sprinted him, but the fact is, he made it, and his equipment was was not all that. So this whole idea of the clothes make the man, or, or, or in cycling relative to cycling that the equipment makes the rider is total BS. It's, it's not real. Mm-hmm. Chad, um, what was your uh, license plate holder for years? <laughs> what did it say? <laughs> I, I, I rode, I raced around like Tahoe in less than three hours. They, they handed him out. Yeah. If you broke three <laughs> hours, it was, it was <laughs> a big deal. Badge of honor. It's it a badge of honor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. like the Leadville buckle. At every know? stop, just, like, you don't have to wear. People knew. <laughs> <laughs> that man that's right around trainer own less or trainer like Tahoe less yeah, than I wasn't subtle about it okay uh, and then when it comes to the well we're still going to be a bit anecdotal here but I still believe and we've all backed this up that RPE is in fact king you have to you have to be able to tie everything you do to how it feels or you have to be understand how everything feels what it what it means in terms of all these other things and then my second bit of advice on top of ignore, acknowledging the RP is in fact king, is to ride indoors eventually. So I know you're not there yet, but I think your next move needs to be to get an indoor trainer and to get a trainer road account. And I know, yeah, of course I'm going to say that, but I mean, that's where you're going to drive the most benefit in terms of where you're going to go from this point forward. Mm-hmm. If performance is your concern and it sounds like it is. Mm-hmm. So when you mm-hmm. do have this data, this indoor data, and, and even, you know, in, in the meantime, with the, with the speedometer, even acknowledge that every bit of data that you acquire, that we acquire helps us reinforce what we know and what we're learning about RPE. It informs our perception, quite literally that rating of perceived exertion, everything from from the power you're putting out to the grade that you're riding to the speed that you're sustaining. You can look at that data and then realize, okay, that's what this feels like. You can make these associations so that you're not reliant on that data. You can translate it meaningfully. Even heart rate helps us recognize a a number of things. One of them is that there's a, a pretty substantial disconnect between our internal stress and our external load. So what's going on inside the body and what the body can do can often be different things on different days, which is why training solely by heart rate is problematic. Um, again, to reiterate, RPE is king, and it's your best friend right now. It's, it's most of what you've got, and frankly, it's everyone's best friend all the time. You just have to learn how to make use of it. Okay, so that's the anecdote. Now let's get into just a bit of science. Um, first off, there can be an emotional connection, as odd as that sounds. And I came across an article that uh, from way back uh, by Matt Fitzgerald titled, the tyranny of the comfort zone. And what he describes is those riders who gravitate toward comfortable workouts or or what he calls the comfort zone claim in particular that high intensity interval training is dangerous, that it risks overtraining and injury, and therefore it should be minimized. They, they, They try to play it as sensible training when what's actually going on is they're making excuses because they're afraid to hurt. So they're, they're avoiding suffering, not recognizing the fact that Super threshold work, anything done above your FTP, high intensity interval training like VO2 max and anaerobic work, sprint intensity training, all seemingly out of line with certain disciplines 
convey really useful physical adaptations across the, across the board. And this is why you'll see sprint workouts at the start of a long distance Ironman plan. They, they, they're meaningful, they're, they're useful and, and meaningful. You may not recognize it in the moment, but these, these adaptations will catch up and they will make a difference at some point in time. Mm. Take those physiologic adaptions and set them aside. And he makes this point, and I strongly agree with it, is that suffering for the very sake of suffering in training is absolutely necessary to realize your potential in competition. And this brings me back to something we've talked about a couple times where there's kind of a couple schools of thought on this. And one is that you save your hardest workouts for race day. You know, nothing brings it out like a race. And I agree with that to a large extent, but I'm definitely of the, la the latter school, the, the one that says your hardest stress needs to be done in training. I want people to mm -hmm. experience everything they can in training such that when it happens on the race course, they're not surprised by it. I they may recognize this is going to suck. I don't want to do this, but I can do it because I've seen it before. I've felt it. I know I can do this. Uh, th that is so key what you just said. And I want to just pull everybody rather than like, there's a, there's a uh, type of intensity where it's like seven hours, right? That you don't get in training, but for actual intensity inside of a race, mm. my workouts have, have matched or exceeded actual intensity in a, in a race. Is that the same? Let's go through Amber. Did you train as hard as you raced? I would say in terms of intensity, yes, it was really hard to replicate, um, volume, like doing back-to-back yes. -back stage races, Sure. but as far as intensity goes, yeah. Yeah. Chad. Yeah, absolutely. I, it, this is, this is why I come from this school of thought is because I went through all of this while I was teaching classes, such that when I went out to a race, nothing was unusual. John. Mm. Yeah. Same thing, especially with like cross country mountain biking and doing those the reduced amplitude bill at workouts where it's like you punch and then you rest just below threshold. Then you punch again. You have to do that eight times. Yeah. You do not feel like doing it after time two, <laughs> like, yeah. like, but you still have to keep going. And there's so much value in that. Like, <clears throat> I, I like once again, the tyranny of the comfort zone, like it's really tricky that that's one of the reasons that measurement is so important and so helpful is because that allows us to quantify abilities see where our potential is, and then make sure that we're reaching toward that potential. Now, if you don't have equipment, you can work your way into that for sure. But it's still like, it's, it's such an important point that you can't let yourself just drift away. And I think that there is a whole lot of aversion to data because it does allow you to reside within that comfort zone. Um, Not exists for sure. That, that, just <laughs> the <no>. idea, <laughs> if you're in a, uh, a race with like, it's a mass start and you're with a group, and you're with that group and it gets really hard of having that thing in the back of your mind where you're like, I've gone harder than this. So even though you're like, you, there's like doubt, but then you're to go, I remember this one workout where I went way harder than this for longer. And you're, mm -hmm. so this is, I'm going to get through it. And then you have that kind of confidence and then you get through it. Uh, it's, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, John. I'm sorry, Chad, because we're totally interrupting you, um, uh, but hopefully it's adding to this. Uh, one thing that you brought up there, and I think that it's really important I don't want our athletes listening to this to suffer for the sake of suffering, but to, to go through that per, for a productive reason and to understand that it is productive. Mm -hmm. If you're following a structured plan, it's all very intentional. Specific things are being accomplished, many of them physical and also some of them psychological. It's getting you used to being that uncomfortable. That's, that's something that you have to do to be able to perform like you want to perform on the big day, whatever that may be. Really? So, so it's, it's not just, you don't fall in love with and get distracted and lost in the suffering itself. It's always productive. You're always working towards some greater accomplishment. 
it's just that the, the regular and frequent and uncomfortable cost is discomfort. And that's what you have to go through as an endurance athlete. There's no way to get better without going through that level of discomfort. So it just don't lose focus. Don't just focus on the suffering. There's bigger fish to fry out there, so to speak. So, so yeah, just want to make that point. <laughs> so, so continuing on with, with this whole idea of an emotional connection between your intervals, because what I'm, what I'm getting at here is that there might be yet another way for you to work without data. Uh, Matt talks about, or he referred to a study done by Bertrand Behrend in 2009. We'll link to this. And he, he says, and I quote, you have to associate a level of emotion with the emotion with the ability to maintain that pace for exercise of different durations. And he talks about emotion, but basically what he's describing is the whole comfort discomfort continuum which is what? That's RPE. I mean, that's, we're, we're basically quantifying discomfort. You know, how much discomfort can we take for this long? Here's the number we associate with that. So you're really learning to use your feelings, your RPE or R, yeah, your, your particular rating of perceived exertion and, and acknowledging that that too can guide your effort. Yeah, this is, this is really hard to do because <laughs> it's very uncomfortable. <laughs> um, but it's, it is something that you can get better at doing. This is a skill that you can train. This is not something where some people are just born being able to deal with a high level of tolerance for pain. Like this is something that you really can train. And I want to just uh, explore briefly, like the other side of the emotional coin with this, a really interesting, I, I'm, I'm, totally going to botch, uh, citing the source on this, but a very old study was looking at how different animals perceive pain. And they were kind of looking at like a phylogenetic range. So like how do insects perceive pain versus fish versus dogs versus people. And the really interesting thing is that, um, we all experience pain the same way in a physical sense, but humans in particular have a very emotional connection to the physical sensation of pain. So not only do you feel the physical pain, but then you have this layer of anxiety about what does the pain mean? So as an athlete, you start to feel that pain and that discomfort. You're not just feeling the discomfort of the physical sensation. You're also feeling that discomfort of the anxiety around, does this mean I'm not good enough? Does this mean I'm not strong enough? Does this mean that I'm going to get dropped? Um, and that's very counterproductive. So one of the things you can do in your training is to start recognizing that. And if you can start associating different emotions with those physical sensations, that's like a superpower when you get in the race, because instead of having that sensation trigger anxiety for you, that sensation can trigger enthusiasm or excitement or, you know, a, a hunger to tackle the challenge. Um, and this is something that you can practice every day in training. You don't need a power meter for it, but you can start, you know, and you just start by noticing, like, where does your mind go when you start to get uncomfortable? What are the thoughts that come up for you? Um, and then you start to go from there. And, you know, as soon as you can start to observe those, then you can start to change them a little bit or nudge them in a different direction. Uh, so just keep it, keep in mind that this is, you know, it's not something that anybody's born with. And actually a mantra that I like to use once in a while to, to tackle exactly this is, it's just a sensation like the pain. If you can, if you can just feel the pain for just the pain and get rid of the anxiety on top of it, it physically, like the perception of the pain comes way down. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's a great point. I, I noticed that I get worse at this when I get out of practice with it too. I don't know if you noticed that Amber, like, Oh yeah. It's not like, because you've had a, I'm sure that you still 
fo- face that today when you're training. Yeah. It's not totally. like because you had a long professional career that you're suddenly just a forever adept at doing this. I get out of practice at it and I notice it. So. Yeah. Amber suffered more than all of us probably combined because you include swimming alone, swimming alone. You probably suffer. Swimming is horrible. Like it is horrible. Like it is so it's hard. 10 X, whatever yeah. the normal amount of suffering is 10 X. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, I think what you just said, Amber, there's two like mental states that I get in when you're in an interval or you're working hard is you get, there's this positive state where you feel like you're on top of it. And this is kind of mm-hmm. weird to say, and then there's another feeling where you're behind it and in yes. group workouts, I can see my face like sometimes, you know, with a camera. And when I'm on top of it, I like my face, uh, I like look like I'm just all emotion, not all emotion, but all smarts are gone. My mouth is way wide open and I'm like, I'm on it and I'm like concentrating and I'm breathing in deeply. And then there's like, when I am behind it, I like look tense and scared. And like my face is like, kind of like scrunched up motion comes back. Yeah. And you probably see this in the ramp test too. At the very end, when I am at my best ramp test, I am like, like I can't see it, but I, yeah. I look like the ghost, the scream emoji. That is like me yeah. except without the hands up. Uh, but it, it's, it's just, it's so it's, it's your, your mental state. And if you're positive about it, like I'm, I'm in this, I'm getting deep. It, it's like, not doesn't hurt as much, which is insane. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Long sweet spot intervals really teach you that too. Mm. It can be like a, it can be a whole story. Just one sweet spot interval. Sometimes like a 20 minute or you're like, it was wonderful. And then it was the worst of times. And then it was the best of times. And then it was, the, <laughs> you can go through it <laughs> for sure. The best song comes on right in the middle of your sweet spot interval. Yeah. And suddenly it gets easier, even though your power meter hasn't changed. It's yeah, really hard because I think we all care a lot about the performance. Like you care about the outcome of the ramp test. You care about the outcome of the race and it's hard to care about the outcome and not care about the pain. But if you can get to a point where you just don't care about the pain, it's pretty powerful. Hmm. Chad, do you have anything else to add? I do. Just one more thing. I, I, Damon, I want to point this at something that I think a lot of people may assume, but is not necessarily the case. And this is in the context of research and researchers and people who do this professionally and recruit you know, some of the best athletes or really wide ranging cohorts, or they're very specific about what they do. And a lot of the times they're associated with the university, right? And they have access to all this equipment you'd expect them to utilize. And they do utilize it, but they may not necessarily inflict it on the athletes. And And particularly, if you look at how, if you read enough studies, you'll see certain comments repeat themselves. And they'll they'll say, they'll make recommendations, the researchers to the subjects, right at your maximum sustainable work intensity. Aim for the highest average power. Go as hard as you can for all six, seven, four of these intervals. They won't even, they may have done a ramp test. They may have done gas exchange. They may have done everything they need. And they're sitting all this data sitting on all this data, but they're not telling them ride at 300 watts, ride at 75% of. They're saying, pin it, go as hard as you can, mm-hmm. come what may. And, and, and the results pan out quite well. And my, my main point here is that performance improves even in the absence of this objective, all these objective measures of all these data metrics. And the point to, to further that is, is that metrics are not a necessity. They're highly useful. They're potentially very valuable if you make proper sense of them, but they're not necessary to getting faster. But eventually, you know, when you do have a trainer, you can have some exposure to them indoors and you can make these associations a little more, uh, in, in a little more informed manner. So, and one more point on this same topic that I'll try to fold in though, not very well, is that indoors are out, 
no one metric is going to be the be all end all, you know, they, they all work in partnership with one another. It's, it's a legitimate symbiosis. And I know that's for whatever reason, a bad word in, in business circles, it's not a bad word in, in physiology circle, because in this case, all these metrics do in fact benefit one another. So to restate one part of my advice is when you can, and I know you're, you're, you know, financially strapped, but when you can, I do think an indoor trainer and you know, subscription to trainer road is, is your next best route in terms of mm. how you can learn these associations. And then it doesn't matter where you ride. Even if you do an indoor trainer ride and you don't have, have power, you can understand certain things. But then when you do go outside, you can have four different bikes, you know, let's, let's dream big, right? Mm. You can have a time trial bike, may not have a power meter on it, it doesn't matter because you know what it feels like to ride at 98% of what you can sustain for, you know, your, your, your estimated FTP. Doesn't, doesn't matter if, if you have a mountain bike, a gravel bike, all these different bikes, you don't have to slap a power meter on all of them because you are now an informed subject. You've made all these associations and, and they're in the bank, the mental bank. Mm. Where I think the data becomes so valuable for the athlete is when you need a path forward and you want to be able to like breakthrough plateaus, reach a specific thing. When you want those specific outcomes, when you have something specific that you want to accomplish, that's where data is just so helpful. But yeah, there's no denying again, it's, it's utility. It's absolutely very useful, but it's not necessary oh, yeah. when it comes to getting faster. Yep. Especially in the beginning times, like when there's a lot of low hanging fruit, you can, you know, blind mouse yourself and bump into plenty of walls and still make forward progress, right? Uh, without having a lot of knowledge like Chad has, like everything baked into trainer road and everything else, you can still make a whole lot of progress. But when you want specific progress, when you want specific takeaways, that sort of a thing, that's where you go. So uh, that's where it kind of comes back in. Nate, do you have some stuff to add? Yes. Uh, I So one thing with RPE is RPE changes based on how recovered you are right? Where mm -hmm. some days an aerobic ride feels extremely hard. And, um, that's, it's all over the place. Even how many carbs you eat RPE changes, which then changes your power zones. Um, even though your physiology hasn't changed, which can be tough. But one thing that I really like are using uh, ventilatory levels. So if I have a mountain bike without a power meter and I want to do a threshold sweet spot type effort, I can use ventilatory levels. And what those are, are when your breathing changes and it's, it, I never, for like 30 something years, I never knew it was a thing until we did that, uh, uh, that uh, VO2 max test uh, mm -hmm. at Silver Stage and I paid attention to it. And what happens is your breathing rate changes. So you have the normal breathing rate, which is like aerobic. And then once you get to threshold sweet spot kind of level, not immediately, but after a little time in there, your breathing starts to like double. And then when you get to your third uh, ventilatory level, which is the last one, it is like, uh, 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 uh. that's like when I was uncontrollable. Used to, yeah. Run a 5k. <laughs> that would be my, my target. Like if I wasn't breathing at that level, it wasn't good for the, the, the 5k race. And mm -hmm. what you can do is say, if you want to do 60 plus minutes of aerobic riding, stay in V1. If you want to do a threshold or sweet spot level, um, make sure that after a couple of minutes, you're getting into that V2 for like a 10 to 40 minute or longer interval. Um, and then for VO2 max, so you're saying you're going to do three minute hill, hill repeats. Um, make sure you're reaching that V3 because if you're only reaching V2, you're probably not doing uh, VO2 max. And I've seen this too, where um, people think they're going deep. Like my, I love my wife, but 
So she doesn't always hit B3. Treading on thin ice here, Nate. When she is in a 5K race, she is like runs by and she's like, hi guys, how are you doing? And I'm like, you're not breathing hard enough. Uh, but she's extremely fast. So uh, she probably knows exactly what she's saying. She's not listening. It's okay. But just uh, if you're not in V3, what I'm saying is there is a whole nother level for you to get to that you have not even experienced that you can unlock. And if you're in a sweet spot or a threshold interval, and you're at V2 and you're on trainer road, you know in the back of your head like, hey, I'm not even in V3 yet. Because as Chad said, you will eventually get there. If you hold that for long <laughs> enough, you will get to V3. But uh, if you're in a threshold sweet spot and you haven't hit V2 left, guess what? You've got room. Like you're, you're fine right now. This isn't as bad as you think. Um, and then also the last thing I'll say is, Damon, that... Um, okay. This is a very, I lost my place, a very dirty secret. I think we all know, but we don't want to admit. Okay. <laughs> Fancy bikes don't make you that much faster at all. Uh, we love them, but, uh, for cost effective, uh, this is coming from us, but we took, uh, a, a successful athlete podcast from beginner. They used trainer road, how much they improved versus, an aero bike. So with the webs, like a manufacturer would claim for an aero bike advantage over their other bike, which is probably generous. And uh, aero bike cost per watt is 158 times more expensive. And for uh, <laughs> deep wheels, 78 times more expensive. If I, I swear to you, if I hid 200, 400 grams on Jonathan's mountain bike, he would probably not the next day be like, my bike just got heavier. He would have no clue. Uh, and John, you might not believe that. Uh, the only time that John's going to uh, go inspect all his bikes now. Uh, <laughs> exactly. He just broke my brain. I'm gonna, They're I, all coming apart down to the bearings tonight. I yeah. put an extra yeah. 70, <laughs> 75 grams of sealant in each like wheel. And he doesn't even know. Oh no. Um, Cause that's, that's the difference the between like a thousand dollar wheel set. Uh, oh, don't do that. <laughs> The, uh, the other cool. thing, the only time where I think it's, it's a little bit more beneficial is getting aero bars on your road bike or going from a road bike to a very low end TT bike, but a very low end TT bike to a very high end super bike could be $9,000 difference or more. And the, it's going to be a very few Watts. Uh, and I know a lot of us love that, you know, we're doing marginal gains and I've lost races by just a little bit. And some of us are racing a powerhouse of Amber and Brandon at Cape Epic one day, and we need all the help we can get. <laughs> but in general, it's not it. And the last thing mm -hmm. that you can do that does not cost you any more money, and someone on this podcast has doing this for years, even in casual wear, is buying clothes three times too small for you. So one of us here <laughs> wears very tight t-shirts um, often, <laughs> but also if you just buy, like when you're buying a jersey, and you buy tight. I, I, I just did. I actually, I did it myself with our new uh, order for trainer road kits. But if it's very, very tight, that will save you. That could save you five, 10, 15, 20 watts by having tight clothing rather than loose. Yep. And you don't need to have some special materials, just not having it be loose. And when you try it on, you're going to be like, this is ridiculous, right? Okay. This is but if I like, may. <laughs> <laughs> do you think Chad, I, the floor is yours i'm not talking about who, who am i talking my, to my t-shirts fit when i buy them i just happen to respond to strength training so oh hey <laughs> <laughs> oh gauntlet mike was dropped the man has spoken uh, <laughs> I, he buys them all when he's skinny and then he does <laughs> but no the chad you look great he, he gets huge you look great chad uh but i'm just saying that is a it's a it's a great strategy right to have it tight I, just what, you, what it will feel too tight 
when you first put it on. Yes. Right. And then you get used yeah. to it and, and then you're saving a lot of time. So that is a great way. If you do not have a lot of money is just when you do buy a Jersey, buy it loose. I mean, not a tight. What did I say? Yeah, buy it tight. The point, the point being, there's so many ways that you can get faster without spending a ton of money. Right. Yeah. Like, and, and one that's really easy is just by having kit that's more aerodynamic. Right. <gasps> um, or, plenty of different options. So, and, and that article you mentioned, Nate was the cost of getting faster. Uh, that was, uh, so Sean, our awesome copywriter put that together. Uh, it, it caught fire on social media, follow trainer road on Instagram and everything else, by the way, if you're not doing so already, uh, you can see those awesome things where we brought equivalency into the game where we showed how many burritos it cost for trainer road, that sort of a stuff. So, uh, anyway, super interesting. Nate, you, you gasped, you have something. Yeah, I know we're going to move on to the next question and we've done one question sure. an hour and 45 minutes, but hopefully you've got some <laughs> great takeaways from this. The one thing I said on, on social media is that I was going to tell everybody how my crash could have been preventable. And that is so important yes. that I forgot the uh, concussion brain, but okay, <laughs> here's what I did is all the people writing that were new, like for Lee's clinic, we were all like not world-class writers, right? And what I, my mistake was, is I was following somebody. It was like tire to tire. I was thinking, oh, I'm going to help my Cape Epic thing. If I would have followed back two bike links, this would not have happened, right? If I would have given a little bit more room and I was thinking about this, the only people that I trust to follow that close would be Jonathan, you, Lee McCormick or his coaches, uh, Keegan or Ryan Stanish and Sophia. And this is two only if they know that I am on their wheel and I'm trying to stay close because mm -hmm. you all, all of you who I just mentioned are good enough where you will take lines that I can take. But, um, and, and it's just, if I see you do it, I will do it. But other mm -hmm. Pete, uh, Pete's a great writer, but Pete does like, he'll like just hop over something where if I was really close, you guys have seen it. I would, I would crash oh, yeah. and, and hurt myself. I've seen it. Yeah. Right. I've seen it up close. I've seen it in that oh, wheel, wheel situation you just described. So for me, if I would have given two bike lengths with really like, even in a, in a race too, this can happen. You follow so close, they make a mistake and then you get a really big mistake. Two bike lengths. I would have been fine, right? I would not have any of this stuff. I would have finished the whole enchilada and my whole life could be different only because I was getting too close and I was actually getting a little cocky with my skills as I was like, well, I'm going to roll up close and look at this. I'm doing it. Look how good I am. Mm -hmm. And then blammo, this is what I did to myself. So that is, I think, hopefully a lesson that a lot of people can learn is just give a little space. Even in a, in a big race, you give a little space, it's going to be okay. Uh, especially in descending, you give a little bit of space. There's a whole another level of like the Johns and the Keegans where they are extremely good and there's tactics with being really close and stuff, but that is not me. And that is probably not the majority of our listeners, uh, that need to do that. Sure. That's a different level, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, okay. Let's go down to, to Ula's question. He says, what is the minimum effect, uh, a minimum effective dose that saying that Chad has mentioned many times, and I'm really glad that people are getting that in their heads, by the way, but what is the minimum effective dose of sweet spot training to expand the sweet spot based high volume plan consists of only sweet spot workouts for about eight and a half up to 10 and a half hours a week. Whereas the mid volume and especially the low volume plans sprinkle in workouts of higher intensity. So my question is, where's the cutoff? For example, if I have two hours to train three times a week, would it be effective to do only sweet spot or would I have to sprinkle in higher intensity to make the improvements that I want? For example, something like two time or two sweet spot workouts and then one threshold or VO2 max workout. Lots of love from Ula. So <clears throat> this is probably like a great chance to talk about the structure of the sweet spot plans and 
I think a, a common misconception, if I can just add this in beforehand, Chad, <laughs> is that you write a high volume plan. Uh, and then what you do is you cut it in half once and that's the mid volume. And then you cut that one in half and it's the low volume or vice versa that you write the low and then you just triple it to get, to get the high. That's I think a common assumption. However, that's not the case. Correct. Correct. Yep. So first off, lots of love right back. Ula, it's very nice of you. Okay. Mm. So let's define, we've talked about the MED, the minimum effective dose a number of times. So let me just give you my definition of it. Not, not, nothing cold from a dictionary or anything like that. Basically, it's the minimum amount of anything, whether it's stress or your medication or sleep, et cetera, to achieve a particular outcome. You know, what's the, what's the least I can do to attain this benefit, this result? For instance, if you do a six by three VO2 max intervals, and this brings up a point, a side point, by the way, everyone seems to have a term where drink, right? Right. You're, you're drinking associated term. I feel like mine's probably VO2 max because man, I say that a lot. <laughs> so go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Like, like people drink when I say Keegan, that sort of a thing, right? That's yeah, how you get that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. That. Okay. So you're going to get real drunk real soon here. Um, okay. So hold on. I'm sorry. Since you brought that up, I have to bring up, it was on my mind and I have to do it. I've come up with a t-shirt idea. It needs to have Chad tipping back a beard and needs to say minimum effective dose on the, on the shirt. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> that funny. would be an amazing shirt. It's, it would be a genius. good beers with Chad one. So, yeah. okay. <laughs> so, so, so in my example, if for instance, you can do a six by three VO two max interval workout, you do it at 120% and that's enough to spur physiologic adaptation. You're getting faster week by week. Why would you do a seven by three or why would you do a six by four? Because the, the question then becomes, or the, the risk then becomes that you're increasing the likelihood of overtraining or burnout or injury or illness. But then the question is, how do we know what our minimum effective dose is? And quite simply, it's iteration. And ideally, you're very conservative to start. So in this same example, you successfully complete a six by three VO2 max drink workout. Next time you do seven by three, or the next time you do six by three at 122% or whatever, you know, maybe you trim down the recoveries in between them, but in some way, it progresses and the adaptation that goes along with it progresses as well. But eventually that system breaks down. It breaks down somewhere, any number of places. So ideally you escalate the challenge conservatively so, so, the, so that you avoid this breakdown. And you also pay attention so that as the breakdown approaches, all these signs avail themselves. You don't go into it in the dark. You'll, you'll see signs of it. The workouts will start to fall apart. Your power gets spotty. You have to take 10 second back pedals, whereas you, you didn't need to. You're trying an eight intervals workout and only getting through six of them. You'll, you'll see it. So pay attention, be honest with yourself. And this is just one illustration of how growth as an athlete is a lifelong endeavor. We're always learning and, and, and man, it's a moving target. And I'll talk about that too in a little bit. So again, the, the minimal effective dose, the MED for anything is, it, it, well, not again, it's relative. It's the minimum dose necessary to drive the response you're after, right? But what are you after? Different times, you're after different things. So for instance, if you're looking at the MED relative to a transition period, and this is one of those rare periods where losses in fitness are actually acceptable, or at least they should be. And, and you're really concerned with loss of aerobic fitness because as we, as we well know, it takes a long time to build aerobic fitness. So chunking away at that over, over a transition period is kind of a hard sell and understandably so. But some athletes have to, they simply do. You're coming off of a series of grand tours like, like this season, you're gonna have to take a transition period. You're gonna have to sacrifice some of that fitness. A lot of us don't. 
So in the case of a lot of people who aren't training that much and they don't need this dedicated transition period, they're just going to make it a week or whatever, two weeks maybe, then the, the MED in this case could be a single long ride. It doesn't take much. So to maintain aerobic fitness over a transition period, this is, this is the minimum effective dose. One single ride just to kind of touch up that system. And it could also be anything else during that transition time that that's, uh, stimulates the aerobic engine. So feel free to fold in some form of cross-training. Another series where, uh, situation where the MED is something else is when you're uh, having to do with injury or illness. So, you know, obviously not during the injury or the illness so much as the healing period. So the return from injury or illness. And this, I've talked about allostatic load in the past. I don't think I've really described what allostasis is, but you know what? We've talked, we talk about homeostasis, which is basically the body in equilibrium. Anytime we verge from that, anytime we leave e uh, homeostasis, we're in a state of allostasis. Now our body is in a state of trying to return to homeostasis. And that's where this allostatic load comes in. You have to look at the entire allostatic load, all the stressors that are pulling on you, pulling you out of equilibrium, all the ways your body is trying to fight to return to equilibrium, all take a toll. So if you're injured and really in the process of healing, some of your resources that you could be dedicating, dedicating to training have to be dedicating to this healing process. So there will be a necessary reduction in training volume. And it's I, I'm, I'm actually in the throes of this right now. I, I rolled my ankle and I have a severe strain. That's what I get for running in the dark and hitting a pothole. It's idiotic, but I'm paying for it, but I have scheduled workouts. And it just turns out I can get my foot into my cycling shoe, though I can't latch it, and I can put pressure straight down. As long as there's no lateral movement, I can still train. So I look at these workouts that have two or three sets or four sets, and I do the first one. And, and if things are okay, maybe I'll dip into the second one, but probably not. I've just been erring on the side of caution and doing a little bit. And I do believe that this will be my personal minimal effective dose to keep my fitness where it is so that when I do heal and I can resume training, I've lost little, if any, fitness. And then another instance, and we've talked about this a lot, is during maintenance. And, and we talk about training residuals, because that's what training residuals are. I mean, or that's that's how you address them, by, by these little tiny doses that just, as I mentioned, touch up energy systems. So we're looking for the minimum effective dose to maintain that energy system for whatever length of time. Maybe we're dedicating emphasis somewhere else. Maybe we just need to back things off. And then the fourth instance, and I'm sure this is the one you're talking about, Ula, is, is improved performance. And specific to sweet spot, sweet spot training, let, let's talk about that. Um, the, the amount of sweet spot necessary to stimulate positive training adaptation is going to vary based on a number of things. You know, one of them is obviously training history. If you're off the couch versus pretty fit versus very fit, all of those are going to require a, a different minimum effective dose. The familiar, familiarity with the training stimulus. If all you ever do is low intensity rides where you're breathing through your nose, and then the other end of that is high intensity work where you completely gas yourself, but you've spent very little time training in the sweet spot, then only a little bit of sweet spot training might be enough of a shock to the system to spur adaptation. And then finally, and this one is too often overlooked, the, the accuracy of your FTP assessment. A lot of people don't like assessing, and I'm one of those people, but it will bite you in the butt. So if you go for too long without assessing and you've seen an improvement in your fitness, but you're still working with an old number, then it's going to take a much greater minimum effective dose to actually bring you to a higher level of performance because you're not really challenging the system as you should be. 
And then the final point here is that, that the minimum effective dose is a moving target. As, as your body gets good at doing the same thing, it adapts. I mean, this is the process of physiologic adaptation. So you have to, you have to change the stimulus in one way or another. And it could be simply a product of you being fitter and requiring a higher minimum effective dose. Mm. Yeah. Those are awesome, awesome points to that too, as far as the, the varying aspect of it, right? Because you can do the same thing over and over and over again. And then the benefits you get from it just ends up dropping. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, the, and so in, in terms of the, the sweet spot base plans, it's it, with the high volume plan, there's probably enough stress for most athletes to, to, <laughs> and, and we can <laughs> all attest to this. And he's nodding. <laughs> yeah. If that's not enough sweet spot training for you, again, you're probably working with a faulty FTP or you're just a monster and, and it's time for you to do something else. <laughs> Um, with, with sweet spot training, band sweet spot training. Um, and then when it comes to, oh yeah. So the, the nature of sweet spot training is that it's lower intensity and it may not seem like it in the moment because we drag the intervals out to be quite long, but it is sub threshold and therefore it requires a pretty high volume to drive the improvements in performance that we're seeking, the adaptation that we're chasing, chasing. But then in the lower volume plans, the number of all those sweet spot hours added up is probably insufficient for most people to be the only stimulus necessary to make them faster riders. So in, in the absence of this extra duration, this added training time, got to make up for it with some higher intensity workouts. And that's why those VO two max workouts and little sprints and, and thing of that nature will start to fold into it. Mm. Yeah. That's a really good way to explain that, especially like with the lower volume plans and, and how that works in, in other words, it's not just, you know, triple, uh, high volume is not triple low. Uh, it, it's a very different experience and it's designed entirely differently. Hopefully just like listening to all of this can give you an idea of all the thought that has to go into it too. Um, this is not Chad, just back of napkinning all of these trainer, <laughs> all of these training plans. Yeah. And <laughs> you it, put a lot of work into anecdotally, it. I'll add that, um, well, two things. One, I did three weeks of the high volume plan to kick off this Cape Epic endeavor. And honestly, I, I emerged from that. I, I recognized I wasn't gonna be able to make five without completely breaking down. So I did three, <laughs> but I came out of that dang near bulletproof. I mean, I've, I've had the best start to a season that I've seen in probably a decade, all attributable to mm -hmm. doing a high amount of sweet spot base, but I was prepared for it. I, I didn't just jump right into the high volume plan because I thought it would give me the most bang for my buck. Rather, I recognized I was doing enough work that I could probably handle that leap. And then secondly, back in my uh, indoor power, my indoor studio days, our bread and butter, my bread and butter was the sweet spot base one and two plans. And it was just the low volume version of it. But so many of those riders emerged into their competitive seasons and all their friends and fellow competitors were asking them, what did you do this winter? And it was largely sweet spot training. Yeah, it, it can be surprisingly effective for a lot of people because it doesn't seem on paper like a whole lot of training volume. Like we get a lot of athletes that say, I do 15 hours a week. Like I should just jump into the high volume plan. And in almost every case, I usually say, well, actually, why don't you just start out with a low volume, see how that works for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then you can always just go in on calendar and you can just click on that and you can up it to mid volume or uh, then eventually up it to high volume because you can just get so much with out of that. Cause it's such high quality work. And in most cases, when people come in without structure, they they overestimate the amount of structured time they're currently putting in. And then once they actually have structured training, they're like, Whoa, this is <laughs> these, you know, these five hours a week are actually really hard. So it's a, it's a really good thing to keep in mind. And we actually, Jesse wrote an article on this. It's fantastic. One of our copywriters, um, 
on our on our blog, trainerroad.com slash blog, and it's how to get faster with low TSS. Uh, it's it's just fantastic. Uh, really good article where he talks about this very thing. And the, I think the the one the final point I want to make on this too is there's this weird assumption that I see that like sweet spot isn't a race applicable intensity zone. That it's like something you just do at a certain time of the year and then that's it. However, when I look at almost all of my cross-country mountain bike races, when I look at my road races, when I look at my criteriums, that sort of a thing, when the real race is on, which is all the time when you're in a cross-country mountain bike race, but in a road race, when the real race is on that sort of a thing, I've got spikes. And you know what happens after that spike? I ride at sweet spot. And if I'm totally unfamiliar with that sort of strain, and also like you mentioned, Chad, we have to drag it out quite a ways. <laughs> you go through that process of learning that I can ride at this intensity, even though it's very uncomfortable, I can ride at it for an extended period of time. And that sort of a thing is very race specific. And I've noticed that for me, in most of my races, the majority of my time gets spent in sweet spot. Granted, I'm a cross country mountain biker, but you'd think that it's like all on and like really high percentage of FTP and then all off and just repeat. But in reality, it's not, uh, because if you race like that, what ends up happening is that whole thing gets smoothed down and scrunched and you end up just riding because you're capped and you've blown yourself up and you hopefully can even ride at that sweet spot zone. So I think it's a very specific, like uh, uh, race applicable intensity zone, then it doesn't get the credit for that, that it actually deserves. And that's why, uh, Nate, you've raced fantastically well, just on sweet spot base going into criteriums and stuff, right? Yeah. And also gravel, uh, every gravel climb for a long 80 mile race, you can't do everyone a threshold. It's just not possible. Mm -hmm. And then for us, Cape Epic will be like, phew, those are some long climbs, but it's just going to be like how, who can do the most sweet spot over eight days? As I doubt we're going to be riding at threshold on many of those climbs when the day is five, six hours long. Uh, I, I don't, you will <laughs> just straight day. <laughs> Amber's going to do four hours of threshold every single day. <laughs> Uh, I, I think we're almost done, but I just want to mention one thing. It's a bet that I have yeah. with a very famous, we have one more question to cover, but oh. this bet is very important. Okay, let's so do you the should bet. go ahead and toss it. Cause in. it yeah. <laughs> somehow he and I were chatting on Instagram and I don't know how it came up. I think he said, just do 370 for 30 minutes, but Keegan and I have a race from now who can do 370 Watts for 30 minutes first indoor or outdoor has to be at our, our hometown. So we can't go down to sea level. Uh, and it's a hundred dollars to the winner. Okay. Nate's drinking term is sea level, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, uh, that's absolutely true. Well, people don't yes. understand. It's a big difference. So, uh, I don't know if you've heard about it before, but it's about 5% from Reno down there. Anyway, so I got a lot of drinking terms because I don't know who's listening to the podcast. Uh, I forgot what I was going to say. Actually, when Chad was doing that stuff, uh, last time I actually got a headache in the middle of Chad explaining the something stasis. <laughs> um, uh, so this is going to change my knowledge. It's not going to change my training, but what it is going to do is inside of the intervals, it is going to give me more motivation. Like right now we don't really have races, but you ever get in that deep interval and you need something to think about. Right. And if you have something, a goal of like, this is going to step me to that 370 for 30. And I bring it up because if I can do 370 for 30 up here, I can probably sweet spot climb at 340, 350 at Cape Epic. And if I could do that, which is 
That'd be amazing. <laughs> what, what elevation is that, Nate? Cape Epic? <laughs> yeah. uh, it's like yeah. 50 meters. <laughs> okay, got it. It's meters down there, not feet. <laughs> he would say, at this point, he would say the beach is about 0.5 meters. So, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but with it, this is going to be exciting because it's not about power to weight. Um, so if you're watching right now, cast your votes down below, let us know in the yeah. comments below or jump into the trainer road forum and let's start a thread on this and hype it up to see if Nate can get uh, the same power as somebody that weighs like 135 pounds. So this will be hey. a, an interesting, <laughs> sorry, subtle dick. He's done, he's done two by 20 at 365 before I believe, or something like that. And I think I've done 400 and 400 and something Watts for 13 minutes before, but I haven't done these some longer intervals. So Sure. Who knows? It'll just be, it'll be, it's it'll just, be fun. It's a fun, meaningless bet. But it's a good, good for motivation. Yeah. So, yeah. okay. Last question. Uh, we're going long, but it's okay. This one's from Amy. Uh, she says, thanks so much for all of your excellence. That's amazing. Um, mm. that yeah, you say that that's so kind. Thank you, Amy. Uh, she says, I love your podcast and listen to it religiously. The blog posts are great too. I learned so much from you guys. Thank you. So I'm confused about heart rate. <clears throat> My understanding is that having a low resting heart rate is an indicator of good fitness. But then I hear a lot about how cyclists worry during workouts if their heart rates don't go high enough. Any clarification on when lower heart rate is desirable and when it's not would be really helpful to me in general and particularly as it relates to FTP testing and riding. Thanks again from Amy. Uh, you want to kick this one off, Amber? How, how should yeah. we go about it? Yeah. Um, so... First of all, thanks for the kind words. That's really awesome. I'm glad to hear that this has been helpful for you. Um, high and low heart rate is always relative to the individual. And we've talked about this before, but I think one of probably the crux of where the confusion is coming from is that generally a low resting heart rate relative to the individual. So resting heart rate, like lower for you, if your personal resting heart rate comes down, that indicates usually an increase in fitness. So that's generally a good thing. Having a low resting heart rate correlates pretty well with your fitness level. Another way that heart rate can correlate with fitness is how quickly your heart rate recovers following an, an effort. So if you're doing a set of intervals, how quickly does your heart rate drop back down after it's increased uh, during an interval effort? Um, that's another good indicator. So the faster your heart rate recovers, the more fit you probably are. So those are two really good indicators of fitness. What gets a little bit confusing is your max heart rate doesn't change with fitness the way that those two indicators do. So um, max heart rate is mostly genetic and it's very individual and it really doesn't correlate well with fitness. And the other thing is your max heart rate in cycling could be different than your max heart rate in swimming or different than your max heart rate in cross country skiing. So it's also activity dependent. Um, so it, it, it does get a little bit confusing because if you have a low resting heart rate, it doesn't mean that your max heart rate is going to change either. So like if your resting heart rate decreases by 10% after a month of training, it doesn't mean that your max heart rate is also going to decrease by 10%. Um, and again, your max heart rate is relatively unchanged by changes in fitness. And so that's again, why it's not a great indicator of fitness, but it doesn't correlate necessarily with changes in your resting heart rate. Um, so that's a little bit confusing. And then I'm kind of, I want to answer why people might be concerned if their heart rate isn't getting high enough during training. And this will correlate also, um, or at least this will help you in terms of testing and, and, uh, training with heart rate. So the first thing is that heart rate is a lagging indicator. So if you have a train, a power meter and a heart rate monitor, you can 
start an interval by increasing your power to your target power output for that interval. But you'll notice that your heart rate won't come up at exactly the same rate as your power. In fact, it might take 10, 15, 30 seconds in some cases for your heart rate to come up into its target zone during an effort. Um, so the fact that it's lagging indicator might be part of why somebody was saying, oh, I was, you know, I had to wait for my heart rate to come up or it wasn't coming up fast enough. It's just, that's how heart rates work. It's a lagging indicator of effort. Um, the other thing is when you're training, you start to get a feel for where your heart rate usually is in a given zone. So if I'm training with a power meter and a heart rate monitor and I'm doing a sweet spot, I'm probably thinking, okay, my, my heart rate's going to be maybe 155 usually when I'm deep into a sweet spot interval. That's roughly where my heart rate usually is for that type of effort. And again, this is highly individual, right? So what is a sweet spot heart rate for me normally is going to be really different for somebody else. And that's fine. It may not have anything to do with our relative fitness levels. This is a very genetically determined um, characteristic. So when you know what your heart rate usually is for a given level of effort, if on a day, like I normally say, okay, my heart rate's usually 155. If I'm doing a 20 minute sweet spot effort, I know it's a lagging indicator. So if I'm 10 minutes into a sweet spot effort and I'm hitting my power target, but my heart rate's only at 140, when your heart rate is low relative to where it normally is during training, that can be an indicator of fatigue and it can be an indicator for the onset of illness. So you might not be having mm. symptoms of being sick yet, but it might mean that your body is fighting something off and it could indicate just that your training stress load is really high and you're feeling fatigued from the training. So that might be um, one of the causes for concern why somebody might be concerned that their heart rate isn't high enough during an effort. It's also a sign of increased fitness, which is, yes, can be annoying. I was going to say too. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Uh, so there's so many moving levers, yeah. right? Yes. Like, like it's, it's just really tricky because that's one of the things that you'll notice as you go through a training block and you're getting closer to that next FTP test. A lot of the time you'll notice that at that same intensity, your heart rate isn't as high. And it's likely if it, it if you're getting, following your training, hitting your marks, recovering well, it's likely that it's not a cause of fatigue. It's likely that you're just getting fitter and hydration status changes it and caffeine and the mm -hmm. time of day that you're training and how and excited sure. you are. I can, you can, I've been doing group, you know, I do group workouts or any kind of workout and inside of a sweet spot interval, you can tell when I visualize the finish in a crit because my heart rate <laughs> yes. literally goes up and then goes back down. And like, I get adrenaline. Do you do, you do mm -hmm. that too? Totally. Totally. Yeah, totally. If I'm watching beats. bike races, my heart rate goes up. I get the adrenaline rush. And it's just, <clears throat> <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Or you get a message or somebody like you, you need to enter, like focus on something else with your mind and you'll watch your heart rate just whoop, spike right up when you have to, you know, focus on something else or do something else. So it, so many variables end up affecting that one. It, it's really tricky for sure. So, yeah. So um, as, as far as applying sorry. heart rate to, to testing, I think the most important thing is to understand that it's a lagging indicator and that a variety of factors could potentially be influencing your heart rate on any given day. So you want to just, you want to take it with a bit of a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Chad, you, you brought up an interesting point on this one. Cause there's kind of like an assumption that like, um, your heart has a finite amount of beats Yeah, and, and, <clears throat> and training, like you're, you're using up your beats. Like, <laughs> yep. like why would you do it? <laughs> yeah. This is, this is kind of a playful answer because this was supposed to be a rapid fire question until Amber sicked her big brain on it. So <laughs> I was coming from something that would have been quick. Uh, her, her, her response was terrific, but I didn't, I didn't go deep. I went, Playful. 
So there, cool. there is this notion. So I've already bagged on people who gravitate toward the comfort zone. So now I'm going to bag about <laughs> people who don't even exercise. And, and one, of their, <laughs> one of their excuses is that we only have so many heartbeats in a lifetime, which initially you want to laugh at. But surprisingly, there's, there's a fair amount of data that kind of backs that up, which is a little creepy. But it doesn't make the case for avoiding exercise. In fact, if anything, it makes the case for exercising. So, and, and most of this comes from uh, the Haywire Heart. So Leonard Zinn is really the, the resource on this, um, except for this first statistic, which says that the average male or female, the, their heart rate per minute, so their BPM for males is 72, for, for females is 80. And this is from the Essential Atlas of Physiology back in 2005. Can't imagine that's changed a lot since then. So <clears throat> if you do the math, and, and I've, I've done it already, I'm not gonna do it on the fly here. Per day, that adds up to about 100,000 beats for a man, about 115,000 beats for a woman. Per year, 38 million and 42 million, respectively. And then per lifetime, per 80 year lifetime, 3 billion, 3.4 billion, okay? I'm just so gonna, just, I wanna hit pause here really quick and say, thank you, Hart, that is amazing. It's That's incredible, incredible. Right? It's incredible. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, we Holy could, smokes. We could dwell on that for a while. It'll, uh, that'll break yeah. your brain. Okay, so... Leonard Zinn says regarding athletes, if you sleep at 40 BPM, and that's not an, un, uh, an uncommon uh, low heart rate for, for, for most athletes, 40 BPM is where a lot of us reside, especially in our younger years. So say you sleep eight hours at 40 BPM, and then during your waking hours, it nudges up to 60 BPM, and then you do three hours of training at 125 BPM. Now you're coming in at 88,000 daily beats, regardless of male or female. 32 million per year, 2.5 billion per lifetime. So already you've seen a big drop. And then Zinn pins the average workout BPM at about 125 because what he notices is that even with heart rate extremes where we jack it way the heck up, and then but the, but then we tie it to the effort duration curve where you can only hold it so high for so long. So it, you know it, it all kind of balances out. You weave in recoveries where it's really low, warm ups and cool downs where it's kind of all over the place. The average still commonly falls somewhere in the 125 BPM ballpark for workouts. So we're just going to work with that number and just trust. Even six hours a day at that 125 BPM average still is less beats than, than 80 years at 72 BPM. So even with these extremes, even with really long workouts at you know effectively double the heart rate most people will spend their day, we still see less lifetime heartbeats over the course of 80 years as endurance athletes. So point is endurance athletes mathematically see less lifetime heartbeats than sedentary folks. It's probably some cardiovascular fitness is the reason why they're living longer and not the amount of beats, but that is still interesting. Mm -hmm. And two, uh, it's just a fun way to look at it. We should yeah. have, if you should have asked me this before, cause I would have looked at all of our data. We have like almost 90 million workouts in our system yeah. or rides that we could see the average heart rate and probably have more data than, uh, Zinn does. I don't know how much data he has, but I don't oh, know if he has yeah, 90 yeah. million rides that you can just do a query and figure out what the average is and a bell curve of what, uh, kind of where things land inside of it for like a hour plus workout. That'd be interesting. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine the level of anxiety if that was your perspective of like, <laughs> yeah. I need to save my heartbeats? Oh my gosh, <laughs> like every day. <laughs> and then the anxiety would make it go higher. Oh, it'd be a terrible spiral. You'd just never get out of it. So <clears throat> good to know, Chad. Thanks for, for calming that down for me. The, um, <laughs> to what, what Amber said on this too, about how it's so, it's dependent on your uh, genetics and then as your fitness change, things changes. This is why gym equipment that uses heart rates to estimate calorie burn can be wildly off for people, especially people. Uh, I actually think that it's probably 
like the less fit you are, the more it exaggerates it because it, they want you to use their like elliptical machine. It's like, I burned 700 calories in an hour. That is a fit person who can burn 700 calories in an hour. And uh, mm -hmm. anyways, just anything that uses heart rate to do calories, because of all those things that we just mentioned, they call impact it. Unless you're in the middle of a bell curve where their algorithm is to do this, it can be uh, very, very inaccurate. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, this has been a fun episode uh, off the beaten path from what we normally do and covering tons of stuff. Hopefully it was really helpful for everybody listening to this. You can go to the Trainer Road Forum to find anything that we mentioned to this during the discussion. Check out all the links that we uh, mentioned. Uh, we'll have pictures of, of, of Nate in the horrific pictures that he had there. Uh, and maybe even of that board that he saw at the hospital, some cool stuff. So check it out on the trainer road form, go to trainerroad.com, sign up. It'll get you faster. That's what we're working at constantly and finding new ways to do that all the time. So always working on it, always progressing. Uh, so we're working that way with that said, thanks everybody. We will join you or we'll talk to you next week. Take care. Thanks, thanks everyone. Bye-bye.